and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. In this section, we are reminded as Christians we have a new way of living. And throughout the entire chapter, we find it's devoted to us being what we are. Being what we are. By that, I mean that we're told over and over again here to put off the old manner of life. Notice, and he says, to put on the new man. So, it's not the, it's not the old life improved, but rather it is the, the, the new life that's on display. That's the point here. So, so it's a matter of us being what we are. We are new creatures in Christ Jesus. And so many times as Christians, we act out of character. We act contrary to what we really are. And so that's why he says, put off these things, those things that identify you with the old man, the old person, what you used to be, and put on the new man. Put on those things that are characteristic of the new you. Now, there are three things tonight I want you to notice. First of all, in verse 31, he speaks about vices to avoid, and then he speaks about virtues of adornment for the believer, and then the vision that is announced. So let's Let's look at the vices that we are to avoid. And before we look at each one of these individually, I want you to notice the words, to put away. That comes from one Greek word. It means to, to rise up or to lift up, such as, uh, such as an anchor, in, in other words, so you can set sail. You, you put it away. You raise it up out of the water so you can take off. It also means to take one's uh, upon oneself or to bear. In other words, uh, speaking about something like responsibility. So when he says put away, he's talking about taking it upon yourself as you would a responsibility. And then thirdly, it can mean to bear away or to carry off. It's the idea of getting rid of something. And that certainly uh, you know, fits the the description of what he's talking about here, things that we are to get rid of, things that we are to put off. And then he gives a list of five things. Uh, you could call these the filthy five, maybe uh, the fleshly five, whatever you want to call them. And uh, certainly whenever we look at each one of these, it's very easy for us to uh, to, to be impressed by the fact that if we could just get rid of these things, boy, the world would be a whole lot better place to live. Our families would be a whole lot better off. Churches would be better off. If we could get rid of these five things, and, and that's what he wants us to do. These are vices that we are to avoid. And, and notice the things that he mentions. He starts with bitterness. And it's easy to see that 
you know, the boy, this is a, should have a sermon all to itself because it is such a common problem. And the Bible speaks about it often, especially in Hebrews chapter number 12. And you might want to jot this down in the margin of your Bible. And in fact, I'm going to turn over here and read probably the most popular verse there is on the subject of bitterness. Not the only one, but the one that we are the most familiar with. In chapter 12 and verse number 15, he says, looking diligently. There there that word diligent is again tonight, looking diligently. In other words, this is something that demands your attention. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, which we all agree would be an awful thing, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Now, Notice he's speaking about the root of bitterness. It's something that, you know, is unseen. It's the root. It's the underground part. You, it, it's not so obvious, at, certainly at first. But later on, notice he says that root of bitterness springing up. And the result of it is that, you know, it's going to defile you. It's going to trouble others. In other words, it's going to do a lot of damage to our relationships and hurt a lot of people. And so he says we are to put away our bitterness. You would be amazed if you knew how many people are still bitter over things that happened 20, 30, 40, even 50 years ago, something that happened way back then, and they are just eaten up inside with bitterness. And the Bible says we are to put that away. And then notice he speaks about the second word here, putting away also wrath. That word wrath speaks about passion or hot anger. It's a word that uh, speaks about something that is boiling up, something that is glowing, inflamed. And it's kind of like the old timers used to say, uh, somebody that's mad is an old wet hen. That's what we'd say back in Missouri. And, and I'm sure there's some Texas uh, uh, terms that would uh, also describe that. But that's what he's talking about. And you'll notice there is a, there is a, a close parallel between all of these things that, that, he are, that he's mentioning here. They just kind of all go together. Where you find one, you're going to find the other usually, but it, it may be in an exaggerated form of the other. So there is bitterness, he says, put it away. There is wrath, put it away. And then he uses the word anger here, and the particular Greek word translated anger is also translated vengeance in the Bible. It's a word that is used in reference to a passionate outburst, somebody that is in a, a, a rage. You see, it's more than bitterness. It's it's more than what we think of as wrath, somebody that's really upset. But, I mean, it's something here, somebody just inflamed with rage and just boiling over. And he says, put it away. And then clamor, that means brawling or an outcry or a war cry, a, a loud sound of weeping and wailing and crying, noisy shouting, whatever it is. And uh, so it, it's describing, I guess you'd say, a full-blown argument now. So we've gone from this root of bitterness all the way to wrath and anger and clamor. And now notice the fifth thing he mentions is evil speaking. And that has to do with blasphemy or slander, and, and, and naturally that's the worst form of verbal abuse, uh, slandering someone, uh, 
blasphemy, whether it's, you know, against God or that which is holy, that which is, uh, deserves our respect. And so when we look at all of these five things, it's easy to see that these are things that ought to be put away. And notice he says, put away, put away from you with all malice. And that means wickedness or depravity. In other words, all of these things he just mentioned would be included in that list with all malice. Uh, just put all of it away. And so naturally the other sins that he could mention, but these are the things that he's dealing with, things that have no place in the Christian's life, things probably that are most common to our failure as Christians. Because, you know, how many times we think, boy, I've really got a handle on this now. I'm controlling my temper, you know. I'm staying in a good mood. And uh, I, 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 th- I think I've I I finally arrived. I finally got there. And then before the sun goes down, something happens that gets you all bent out of shape and you're upset. And especially if there is some root of bitterness that you've not dealt with, all of a sudden that begins to surface again. And so you're right right back in the middle of, a, of a, another verbal fight with someone and saying things about them and to them that you shouldn't say. And so these are vices that he tells us that we are to get rid of. Now, notice verse number 32. Here we, he speaks about uh, virtues. Virtues of, of adornment, things that would beautify our life. And so he's going from the negative to the positive, from the vices to the virtues. And uh, there's something, you know, very important about the way this verse begins. Notice the word be, the very first word here, be, right at the beginning, and be ye. That that particular word means to be being, to be being. And, and, and it's important, and the reason I'm emphasizing this is because it's talking about a process. It's not stating about us talking about a state of arrival. It's not talking about, you know, be this as though you are there firmly planted and entrenched and you've got it accomplished, but be being. This is something that is ongoing. You, you see, God knows very well that none of us are going to do it perfect every time. God knows none of us are going to suddenly be transformed into a state of perfection overnight. And, and, and God understands that, by the way. You know, sometimes we expect more out of others than what God is expecting out of them. You know, we look at a little kid, for example, and certainly because of their immaturity, we don't expect out of those little children what we would expect out of adults, do we? Because why? Well, they're kids. They're kids. You don't expect them to be able to do the same thing adults do, but you expect them to be progressing toward that. And even so, God expects us to be being, in other words, to be growing, to be headed in that direction, to be making progress, to be gaining ground, however you want to say it. That's the idea here. And I've often said the best back definition of 
backslider that I know of is when someone stops growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. You mark it down. When you stop growing spiritually, you're backslidden. You might know more than anybody else in the church. You might do more than anybody else in the church. You might be morally better than anybody in the church. I mean, your head and shoulders are a spiritual giant in comparison to everybody else in the church. But the very minute that you stop growing as a Christian, it's because you are backslidden. I mean, you're not making progress. And, and, and there, there, there's no place in this life for any of us to ever plateau to get to the place, you know, that we can stop there and say, Woo, well, I finally arrived, you know, I, I'm, or maybe I'm ahead of schedule. You know, it's real easy to get a feeling like that. I'm more mature, you know, than, uh, than what I ought to be. I'm, I'm really making progress here. But we, we never get there because the standard is not our fellow Christians. The standard is Jesus Christ, and none of us ever measure up to Him. So that's why we ought to keep growing, and that's why Paul is saying here, be being. That is, to be in this process. Now, having said that, uh, throughout this journey, we're to be making progress, growing, notice he says, in righteousness and true holiness. And then there are three examples of that that he gives concerning this, and uh, we need to see how they how we relate to other people. Notice this, be ye kind one to another. Now remember, Paul is writing to a church. He's, uh, this isn't an epistle, for example, like the, uh, the letters that he wrote to Timothy, written to an individual. These are written to the church at Ephesus. And so he's speaking about the body of Christ, and he says here, be ye kind one to another. Well, you know, kindness is, has become a rare thing today. We live in a corrupt, cruel world, and uh, here the Bible says we're to be salt and we are to be light. In other words, we are to have an impact on the world around us. That's why it doesn't work for us to separate ourselves from the world. You know, I talked about this morning that we are to separate ourselves from sin, separate ourselves from the things that God disallows. But that doesn't mean clustering yourself your way, you know, hiding like a monk in a monastery and just getting alone where you're not in contact with anyone because we're to be salt and light. And that means that we've got to come into contact with other people. But we've got to come in contact with them in a way that we're not contaminated by them, but rather that we're able to minister to them. And that's where this word kindness comes in. The word kind means fit for use. It means useful or pleasant as opposed to that which is, you know, harsh and uh, sharp and, and bitter. One of my favorite writers, Lehman Strauss, wrote several years ago. He said, the word kind comes from such words as kin and kindred, so that to deal kindly with others is to deal with them as our own kin. And after all, believers are brethren. Well, I, I thought, you know, boy, that's saying it well, and that's a true interpretation of what the word kind means. It's speaking about that we treat others as we ought to treat the members of our own family. The, 
Well, the problem with that is sometimes people don't treat their own family like they should. But you see, he's talking about the manner in which we should treat our family and also others. And so our kindness is to be shown to all people and especially those of the household of God. And whenever you look at that and you realize the how difficult that can be to be kind to those that are unkind, to love those that are unlovely, yet there's nothing unreasonable about it because kindness is our response to God's grace that has been shown to us. It's the manner in which we respond because of what God has done for us. In other words, kindness is you and I treating others as God treated us. And the great thing about this is that any Christian can do it. Any Christian can do it. In other words, it's not above our ability if we surrender ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's not anything here said about us, you know, needing a certain amount of education to be able to be kind one to another. It doesn't say we have to have certain great abilities in order to be kind one to another. We can all do that. We can show kindness one to another. And we ought to keep that in mind every time that we assemble together and every time that we see one another wherever it is to be mindful that we are to be kind one to another. Uh, I've often said you're always best to yourself when you're good to others, and that's certainly true. And we we need to do ourselves a favor and be kind to others. So, That's the first virtue that he mentions is kindness. Now, notice he says, not only that, but he says tender-hearted. Now, somebody's going to laugh now, but I'm going to give you the definition of this word anyway. It is a compound word. That is, for you kids, that means that this word in the Greek is made up of two words, a compound word, and the first part of it is well well, speaking about something that is healthy and something that is in good condition and working order. But the second part of it is bowels. It's speaking about having healthy bowels. That seems really weird to us today, right? You know, we talk about our feelings, the center of our being, and we often use the word heart. But the, the, in, the, in the Old Testament, and, and as you can see here, in the New Testament even, it spoke about the bowels. And the reason that it did so is, is, is because it had to do with our innermost being. Well, boy, there's so much that could be said about this because you, you've heard people say, you know, I tell you, he's going to give me ulcers. You don't know how right you are because, listen, our attitude has a great effect on our health that really does but the whole point here is when he says be ye tender hearted he's talking about our inward feelings that it be feelings of love and pity and sorrow regarding other people and we need to stop and ask ourselves how do we feel about other people how do we feel about other people? Now, we just got through talking about those filthy five fleshly things that we already mentioned. And some of you, you know, if you were to be really honest, you'd have to say, well, I'm stuck on that bitterness part. Or I've progressed beyond the bitterness. The root has sprung up and I'm into full-blown anger. So I don't know where you are, 
but I know where you need to be, where you ought to be. And the same thing's true of me. We ought to be kind and we ought to be tender-hearted. But then notice the third thing he says. He says, forgiving one another. You, 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 you know, when we think about being kind and tender-hearted, and there are so many times that, that what we do is to excuse ourselves from being kind and tender-hearted by, by thinking about the faults of the other person. In other words, we allow their faults because they have so hurt us or offended us, we allow their faults to become excuses for our own failures. Well, you know, I would be kind and I would be tender-hearted toward them, but they're not that way with me. I would be kind and I would be tender-hearted, but, you know, they're just mean as a snake toward me. You know, just like that automatically excuses us. Well, that's why he ends up here, I think, talking about forgiving one another because, you know, if we're going to get a handle on this, then we've got, we've got to stop excusing ourselves, pointing at each other, and start forgiving one another. And, and so, no, no doubt, I think everybody would agree this is one of the one of the subjects that is most needed in churches today. One of the most common faults among people today is their unwillingness to forgive each other. As I said at the beginning, we live in a world that is corrupt, a world that is confused, and consequently, there are going to be conflicts as a result of that. Somebody says, "You know, well, life isn't fair." No, it's not fair. Uh, it's better than what we deserve. It really is. Regardless of how bad it is, it's not as bad as what you and I deserve. And we need to keep that in mind. Life isn't fair. It wasn't fair when they nailed Jesus to the cross. But, but that was God's plan and He allowed that to happen in order that He might redeem those of us who are undeserving of anything whatsoever. And, and so whenever we think about forgiving one another, uh, being kind, being gracious, being tender-hearted toward them, and we think about the difficulty of it, we need to stop and think about how undeserving we really are because when you get right down to it, how in the world can you and I not forgive others when God has forgiven us of all of our sins? I mean, it's just, you know, it, it's mind-boggling to think that, that we would withhold forgiveness from somebody else. Warren Wisby made a statement uh, some years ago, and he said, An unforgiving spirit is the devil's playground, and before long it becomes the Christian's battleground. Boy, is that ever true. I'm telling you because, you know, somebody hurts us, whether it's intentional or whether it's unintentional, and all of a sudden the bitterness begins to build up in our heart, and we become unkind and, and refuse to show any tenderness or any sympathy toward them and their needs and what have you. And, and it's all based on this one thing is that we refuse to forgive them. Now, notice, and I want to just wrap all of this up by looking at this phrase where he says, God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. 
And, and I want you to think about that as a vision that is being announced. I'm, you know, it would be a wonderful sermon if we just looked at these words. Think about it. If I said, this is the text for the message today, God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you, and I put all of the emphasis upon the Lord's willingness to forgive us for, for, for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. But, but it says more than that. That's just part of the verse here. And that phrase is a statement of fact. But notice you add these words, and this is the key to what I'm talking about. Even as. Even as. So now we move from a statement of fact that God forgave us for Christ's sake. We move now to a challenge, and that ought to be our vision as Christians that we could grow in our spiritual life to the point that we are able, with His help, to be able to forgive others as He forgave us. And again, I say, how in the world could we refuse? Because there has never been anyone do anything to you, regardless of how horrible it is, No one has ever done anything to you that is as bad as what you've done to God in your life. No one. You say, well, Brother Stone, how can you say that? You don't even know what all has happened to me. No, I don't. And I realize that we can't fully understand that statement because none of us can even begin to comprehend the holiness of God. If we, if we could understand how holy God is, then we could understand how offensive it must be when we sin against Him. I, I mean, I, I don't know how to put it into words. I don't know how to explain it or to describe it. But let me tell you, whenever God, whenever the problem is so great that the only solution is for God Himself, to step down off of his throne, to wrap himself in a robe of flesh, and to come to this earth, and even though he lived a perfect life, allow himself to be nailed to the cross. And that's, listen, that's just the physical part of it. Hanging on that cross, separated from the Father. You see, God separated himself from God there on the cross, if that makes sense. That's why we talk about the fact that Jesus suffered our hell for us. During those three hours of darkness, you'll remember, he said, Lama, Lama, Sabathani, which means God interpreted, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And God did forsake him on the cross, by the way. I mean, it's the first time in all of eternity that the fellowship between the Father and the Son was broken. For the first time. And it's during that time that he is in such agony and pain. And and it's all because he is suffering our hell for us. And that's why I say nobody has ever done anything to you as bad as what you've done to God. Your sin against God is worse than anything that you can imagine. Now, if God, for Christ's sake can forgive you, why in the world would you not be willing to forgive someone else? And this spirit of being unforgiving has done more harm than, than you can even begin to imagine because there are so many people that 
Well, some of them have been offended. I mean, some of them have been mistreated. Some of them, you know, and, you know, they, they've got a reason for complaint. But they never have a reason for bad behavior. In other words, whatever you do, whatever you do, whatever somebody else does to you should never change who you are. It should never change your character. And I never have a right to act out of character and to do contrary to what the Bible demands just because somebody mistreated me. And people are going to abuse you. And people are going to neglect you. And things, you know, things are not going to be right. Uh, But what is our response to that supposed to be? Forgive them. Forgive them. That's what God did for us. You say, they don't deserve it. No, we didn't deserve it either. You say, well, they didn't ask for forgiveness. That didn't make any difference. Why do they have to ask for forgiveness? You're not forgiving them so much as because of what it means to them as it is what it'll do for you. I mean, you need to set yourself free and deliberate yourself from the bondage of an unforgiving spirit and, and, and the reason behind all of it is what? Well, he says, as Christ, notice, as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Boy, whenever we really get down to the nitty-gritty of our relationships and the, you know, and the conflict and uh, Several have asked lately about the Lord's Supper. And when, when are we going to observe the Lord's Supper? And, uh, and uh, I, I, listen, I can't explain everything. I, I, I don't want to be forced into a corner to have to explain everything. But there is a right, not only a right way to observe the Lord's Supper that we always try to practice there's a right time to do it too. And uh, it would do more harm than good if I stood up here and said, well, let me give you a list of the reasons why we're not scheduling the Lord's Supper right now. But I'm telling you, there's some folks that need to deal with some issues because their issues has an effect upon the entire church body. You've got people storming off mad and not going to say anything and they're going to leave and what have you. Well, help yourself and hit the road, but at least at least have the decency to not send back here for a letter. You know, that's the way I feel about it. If you don't have the decency to even go about it the right way, uh, well, then you shouldn't even, you shouldn't even uh, ask for a letter from the church. I uh, it just irritates me that people like that expect everybody else to conform to their desires and uh, and when something comes up, whether it's justified or not, instead of being a peacemaker and seeking to be reconciled with others, it's I'm going to take my toys and go home and stuff like that. Now, I'm glad that's the exception to the rule. I'm glad I can look out here and say, you know, you know, thank God we don't have a big church full of problems and what have you. Uh, but if any of us is harboring bitterness and anger and malice in our heart toward anybody else, even those 
that have packed their bag and left, or whoever it is, if we're bitter toward them and what have you, we need to deal with that in our heart and put them in God's hands. He, listen, He knows how to take care of that. And, and, he, and He will in His time and in His way. So there are vices that are to be discarded and there are these virtues that are be to be displayed. And when we do that, it can be said of us that we're walking worthy of the vocation wherewith we were called. That's where we started out in this study. And I hope that here at the end of it that we'll all determine in our heart, I want to be the kind of Christian. Now, none of us are worthy. I didn't say that. But I want to be the kind of Christian that walks worthy of the vocation wherein we're called. Let's all stand together. And, um, you know, I think, uh, I think what we'll do is to have Brother Kenneth and all of the campers and all of the counselors, and if all of them would just come and just get right down here in front, if you would. If you're going to camp, I want you all to come down here. Wow. And by the way, this is not near all, this, this is not all of them, but wow. That's, uh, to think about that many going just from the Sunday night crowd and all of those others that'll be coming in, uh, uh, that, that's just somewhat amazing. And certainly, as they go away, we want to pray not only for their safety, and by the way, that's a very important part. We want to pray that God will keep each and every one of them safe. There have been some terrible tragedies that have happened at church camps, and we want to pray that God will keep our, our people safe. But in addition to that, we want to pray that God will accomplish His will in their lives. If there are any unsaved, that they'll be saved. If, you know, if there are those that have you know, spiritual needs, that God will help them. If there are those that are carrying heavy burdens and life is difficult for them and so forth, that God will minister to them in a way that when they get back, they'll be stronger Christians than they've ever been before. And so I, what I want you to do is we're going to bow our heads and we're going to have just a, a time of silent prayer and I want each and every one of you to be praying. And after a little while, I'll call on someone to dismiss us in prayer. And then I want you to just come by. And you folks stay up here. I want everybody else to just come by, go down this row, and just let each one of them know I'm, I'm going to be praying for you this week. How about that? So let's bow our heads together.